Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us, Edward S. Hyman, who's rumored to actually watch every once in a while. He's with Evercore ISI. And I want to get back to the economy and to what you, many would say, invented. And that is the linkage of the economy into the equity markets. This is a chart you and I know from Yale Management. I put it in terms of the Dow and not the S&P 500. On radio, folks, it's a gorgeous shot of the Depression in 1929, a percent change log chart. And up we go, and we just seem to prosper along the way. Do you still have a belief in American exceptionalism and in American capitalism? Yeah, way over my head. I'm a, I'm a practitioner, and uh, right now it looks like it's continuing to prosper. Uh, this is a very important chart in that uh, we're learning more and more that the more the stock market goes up, uh, the more it helps uh, uh, optimism and uh, consumer spending, uh, capital spending, and that's what's been going on. Uh, also, house prices have been going up, and the two together lift consumer net worth, and that's been driving the economy. But that is an exceptional chart. And uh, Well, I'd love to take credit for it, but I think Mr. Ibbotson over at Yale Management maybe would want to take <laughs> credit for this iconic log chart back uh, really 110 uh, years. Ed Hyman, within that, though, what's changed is the belief that there are John Edwards' two Americas. Can we prosper and can we all do better given the polarities that we see in our society, like in the health care debate today? Yeah. So... Uh, uh, I think that if the economy keeps growing, uh, those disparities will uh, dissipate a little bit. Uh, but the main thing I'm focused on is for the bottom of the economy to get better. The top is doing fine. Uh, and the, the main thing that needs to happen to get that to work is for wages to accelerate. And I've been disappointed in that. I thought wages by now would be over 3 percent, and they're still about 2.5 percent. Uh, but the unemployment rate today is 4.3, as you know, mm. and I think it'll be three and a half a year from now. Really? That really. Three and a half percent? Yeah. Wow, we're And uh, it's just, you know, continuing to press on that. And if that's true, uh, then the odds are pretty good that wages will pick up, uh, and that'll help the bottom of the economy. But Ed, how do you explain, actually, that there was almost no wage growth? Is it the quality of jobs being created in the U.S.? Or is it that CEOs still don't feel very bright about the future, that the animal spirits that we were talking about just yeah. haven't really fully taken shape? Francine, I was, I was, I was scared you would ask about that, because <laughs> I really I can't figure it out. Uh, when I travel around, I don't hear about wages going up. Uh, unemployment, like you know, is really low. Unemployment claims are really low. Uh, so my best guess is I just have to be patient, and maybe in 2018 wages will finally start to really pick up. 
but as your question alludes to, wages are not picking up anywhere. They're not picking up in the UK. They're not picking up in Australia, in Canada, you know, the other uh, Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking countries, all of which have low unemployment rates. Uh, but uh, I think it will you know, happen later on in this cycle. Uh, but do you think it's, and, and I know this is the impossible question, because actually we, we've been asking so many people and no one has the answer, which it goes back also to the productivity puzzle. But do you think it's psychological? If central banks, for example, suddenly started raising rates, would that shock CEOs into thinking that their world was becoming harder, but, but it, that the picture was rosier? No, I think, I think uh, Francine, what will make wages go up is that eventually you just won't have enough labor. Uh, and whether it's in the energy space or in the educational space, uh, people will start paying up uh, or they'll start losing workers. Uh, I do think that technology has been playing a role uh, where uh, technology has been replacing workers. And I think that uh, you're still, as you mentioned, an overhang where we still remember a little bit the uh, 08, 09, uh, you know, big depression. And uh, people are scared about that, both in terms of asking for a pay increase and for managers giving a big pay increase. Uh, Ed Hyman, I think the comments on jobs are so important that I want to go to this chart. We give Dean Mackey, formerly of Barclays, with 0.72, a lot of credit for a 4% view on unemployment. Here's the recent leg down to a better unemployment. And Ed, to recapitulate this out a year or so, you see us at 3.5%, which is better than we were in the glory times of 99 and 2000. Do we get growth with that great unemployment rate? We get the same we've been having. You get something like 2 maybe 3% growth, but all during that big drop in the, in the unemployment rate from 10 down to 4.3, growth has been just about 2%. Uh, my view on unemployment going to 3.5% was inspired by Dean Mackey. Well, that's <laughs> so, good. So it's funny you bring him up. Three and a half unemployment by next year, Tom. This uh, took me by surprise. I know it took you by surprise. I just want to hear a little bit more uh, from, from Ed. Where, where are the industries that will lose the most jobs? Well, Prunzi, let me explain uh, how I get there. Uh, earlier, we looked at the unemployment claims, if you remember that chart, down so much. And the unemployment rate and unemployment claims uh, stack up pretty closely. And so the unemployment claims are, are the ticket uh, to why I think unemployment is going to come down to 3.5%. Uh, the, the places that jobs are being created are, as I mentioned earlier, in the healthcare, uh, higher education, the tech space, the new tech space, and then sports and entertainment. Those are the places uh, where uh, local economies are being driven. I mean, the claims chart here, Francine, is extraordinary. Again, this is claims adjusted for population growth in America. And, Ed, it really talks about one part of America. You mentioned earlier bringing the bottom up as well. Is that done by policy or within a Lockean society? Is it done by the corporations and investment? It, it's now become organic. We're, we're in a self-feeding expansion. Uh, and that's the end. Yeah, toward the end of it, it becomes uh, pulling in. But right now... Uh, these sectors that I mentioned right. are, are coming together, and you also have the millennials, and they're driving things. They're giving energy to local economies, like Denver's just sort of booming. In the time we've got left, I want to know your uh, thoughts on the future of global Wall Street in New York, in London, and for that matter, in our other geographies like Hong Kong and Dubai. Yeah, it's pretty tough. You know, the whole financial services business uh, on the buy side, on the sell side, it's a tough industry. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to get any better. 
within the buy side, are they still going to buy Ed Hyman Research? I, mean, I hope you know, so. This is, this is important. <laughs> at, a, at, a, at, a, at a lower scale. At a, at a lower scale. Roger Altman. In, in bonus, Roger, Ed Hyman's with us, and the Red Sox are in first place. Francine? Yeah, uh, Tom, I like that. Uh, we need to thank Ed. Ed was great. Ed Hyman of Evercrise. I sincerely hope you come back very soon. start you with Mark Cafale. He's the Global Chief Investment Officer at UBS at Wealth Management. Mark, great to speak with you. Uh, as I mentioned, joining us from uh, Zurich today. You look at the FT100 and you look at it in dollar terms, it's back to where it was before that Brexit vote one year ago uh, today. What does it tell us? What, is, what does this crazy journey of the last year say to you about, uh, about the market? Well, of course, the, uh, you know, the footsie's done okay, but the, the pound has been whacked against the dollar, something like 15%. And I think you know, what we've seen uh, post the great financial crisis is just how much these currencies are the shock absorber for some of these more political, geopolitical moves. What's your, your outlook for Sterling? How much has that changed here in recent months as we had that uh, speech that Theresa May gave before uh, Parliament, uh, as, of course, she had the, the snap election, saw the results of that, and now as she heads to Brussels for this EU uh, summit? How much has it changed? Yeah, so we think that a lot of the negatives uh, for the pound versus, say, the dollar have been priced in, as Theresa May had signaled she'd be willing to go for a hard Brexit. So we've got it at one spot 30 uh, over the six months. And I think that uh, what I would say, though, is we do sort of think that this Brexit will be a ticking time bomb where, you know, much like these Greece negotiations, they kind of go along and go along, but nothing really gets done until you get down to the wire. So it's, it's going to be interesting to trade, uh, to trade around the U.K. assets for the next two years. What do you make of, of what she had to say uh, at this summit, uh, ensuring the rights of those in the European Union who have been living in uh, Britain for more than five years, providing a plan for those who've been there for uh, less than five, beginning to develop some of the strictures she'd like to see in place, I believe with the hopes here of uh, appeasing those in the, the European Union and those who are from the European Union living in the UK who are worried about their their status there. Uh, does that provide more certainty, just getting those broad uh, contours of a plan that she outlined over the, over the last couple of days? Yeah, I don't think it does. I think that what is, I think that the UK is trying to uh, offer or, or negotiate, but, you know, the, the, if you listen to what Europe's saying, you know, it's not a supermarket, you can't pick and choose, we're listening, they, they have their own views, uh, particularly around the free movement of people, uh, and, and I think they're going to end up dictating more of the terms than, than the U.K. Good morning, uh, David Gura. Good morning, Tom. Where were you a year ago? <laughs> Watching all of this unfold, I, I was actually at it. There was a British pub near Murray Hill. That's a shock. Where I was in the early, why, in the why, early why, evening, why, and things began to change as I had home for Why dinner. is it a shock? Gura was in a Brooklyn bar, <laughs> you know. probably having some overpriced <laughs> British uh, lager. Mark, yeah. Mark Heffley with us with UBS. Mark, where were you a year ago? I remember it very well. I was on uh, the shores of Lake Como meeting with uh, fund managers, all watching the tape. And, and I remember we yeah. all went to bed very late, feeling rather sanguine. And we all started texting each other at 4 a.m. What, 
you know, what is going on. Exactly. And that, you know, first of all, let me comment that Gur is in a bar and Affleck's in Lake Como. Yeah, I'm on the and I'm stuck, in, right. <laughs> I'm stuck in a studio in London with John Farrow. Yeah. I don't know what that's about. Um, it, it was really remarkable to see that late night, David. And really, there was a whisper at 10 p.m. London time. And then the whole next day was just surreal. I remember folks having dinner exhausted after literally no sleep for 30 hours mm-hmm. in Brown's Hotel over on the edge of Mayfair. And the quiet on the streets, David Guru, I will never forget the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely surreal. Mark, let me ask you about what we learned uh, about the uh, the euro area today, uh, recording its fastest expansion in six years in the second in second quarter. Uh, how optimistic are you about Europe right now? Where do you see opportunity in the eurozone? Yeah, so we do like uh, Europe. We are overweight the euro versus the dollar, and we're overweight European equities versus U.K. equities. Uh, and and, and uh, when, you, when you look more global, we're going to talk about emerging markets here in just a little mm-hmm. while on the show, but where do you see opportunity in the emerging markets? Uh, are, you, are you of the camp here uh, saying that uh, amid all of the concern over uh, central <coughs> banking and uh, the prospects for fiscal reform, tax reform here in the U.S., developed markets are, emerging markets are more attractive? We're not saying that emerging markets are more attractive currently as as a group. I think uh, for the emerging markets to do well, uh, we think they'll they'll do okay. You need that base, we believe, of certainly the United States doing well. And I think, um, you know, we'd prefer to stay in developed markets. But certainly Mm -hmm. within within the emerging markets, uh, places like China should continue to do well. What do people do that aren't in the market? They look at the valuations. They keep it simple in their analysis. They look at price to earnings. How do you rationalize the acquisition of shares right now, Mark? Yeah, I think that the, the key since the financial crisis has remained central bank policy as a driver. That's what's uh, taken so much volatility out of this system. And to me, I, I don't want to over, be over-reductivist here, but... With that inflation low, the central banks continue to have room to maintain this oversized stimulus, and that has been supportive for markets and supportive of very low interest rates. So I think what's new that people have to – somewhat new – is people need to weigh that against when they want to call the end of this cycle. How do you counsel clients to to navigate – the low volatility that we have seen and, and continue to see. How, how do you deal with that particular challenge? Well, it, uh, it has created an opportunity for investors who are concerned about drawdowns to add some uh, relatively cheap protection uh, for, you know, for equity index indices. So that's a popular way of dealing with it. Um, and then, you know, the, the other one, I think, what, what we've found is we actually just surveyed our clients, and over 80% of them think that this is the most uncertain period in history. And, and it's very interesting when you compare that, what the markets are telling us, new highs uh, and very low volatility. And I think, it, I think it gets to this dynamic of forces that are extraordinary today, such as central bank policy, which we, we know eventually will end, and our, our look out on a future which is much more uncertain, where governments are in play, uh, national debt is high, and population changes are, are moving demographics all, all over the world. And I mm-hmm. think 
part of what we have to counsel investors on is to take those two separate buckets and separate them a little bit. So UBS out with a new white paper, Millennials, the Global Guardians of Capital. Mark, let me ask you, first of all, how millennials regard wealth, wealth creation, accruing wealth, and uh, what, what they intend to do with it. It's a great question. What I think we found is so interesting is that there are a lot of stereotypes about millennials, this generation born between 82 and 98, that they're very selfish and me-centered. And actually, we found kind of the opposite. Uh, the majority of them are willing to forego, for example, some upside return in their investments if those investments are more sustainable or have a better impact on society. So that, that is one of the trends that I think is very important for, for us to look at. And of course, millennials are increasingly inheriting from the baby boomer generation and soon are going to have $24 trillion in wealth in their command. Do they have a different inclination about what they'd like to invest in uh, when it comes to the types of companies, the types of sectors they're interested in, the, the, the social responsibility of those, those companies in particular? How do, you, how do you adjust to deal with that? Well, it has forced us to adjust in in some ways, but I think in very positive ways, uh, kind of helped us to be emboldened to make a commitment of investing five billion dollars over the next five years in impact investing to to open that up investments that not just have a financial return but also help help society, and that I think for us mm. is is one of the key differences, but. Actually, on some of these things like digital uptake and like sustainability, millennials may lead the way, but it's something that we see as a yeah. broader shift for yeah. our entire investing to population. Me, to me, I mean, folks, just so you know, the $24 trillion wealth transfer, that's happening at the Keene household. That's most of that. <laughs> yeah. most of that. John Tucker, that's Who's most the of that. Transferee, uh, <laughs> the transferees are, are many, many. Where their, all their middle names are tuition. Um, uh, Mark, when you when you look at the millennials, and I'm not sure the age bracket, to me the distinctive feature, seriously, is our lack of economic growth. We have so many kids in their 20s, even in their 30s, who've never known what we call normal GDP. Are they ever going to see the normal, real economic growth we all enjoyed? Well, you know, I think that uh, this this view of what is, is normal, you know, three Three percent growth uh, plus in in the United States. Uh, we're all we're all waiting for the comeback of that. I think I think it's still possible if some of what the millennials are doing around connectivity uh, starts to trickle out of our uh, look look just looking at social media and into things like more productivity in the healthcare sector, for example. That. That would be one of my one of my hopes, or more productivity and connected transportation systems and more automation there. So that I do believe there still is some right. hope to get some of those millennials out of their parents' basement. Right, Mark Heffley, thank you so much. Out of their parents' basement with the Genesee Creamy, probably. <laughs> Maybe with them paying their own phone bill. Is, Maybe. Well, Mark Heffley's with UBS. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. We had a great conversation this morning with Edward Hyman of Evercore ISI, two things. First of all, he said he really cares about PMIs. 
Like when Bloomberg has a PMIs at 945, Ed Hyman leans He's forward. He's going to take a look, yeah. He really, I was surprised, he really emphasized the value he gets out of PMIs, purchasing mm-hmm. managers, indexes. And of course, the other thing, which I think will make global headlines this weekend, he, he believes in a 3.5% unemployment rate. We are not at full full uh, full employment. No, in the, uh, oh, in the listen to you. Very that. good. Yeah. Closing my the fed loop. speak. And we'll close the loop. Very good. Closing the loop. Right now, closing the oh, loop. Tough. We wanted to get Craig Moffat in with Moffat Nathanson, uh, just just to talk about the chaos of the Michael Nathanson Craig Moffat world. Craig, sort of an open discussion this morning. Wonderful to have you um, with us. Great to be back. What, what part of your world is most chaotic now? <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I can speak for my distribution side better than, uh, than Michael's. Right, but covers. we want both. But, I think both. but both are pretty chaotic. Um, and in some ways, I think, you know, the, the, the real action is, is going on right at the intersection between the two. Yeah. Um, in that the launch of all of these new virtual um, MVPDs, as they're called, or, or uh, virtual cable operators, the, the YouTube TVs and yeah. Hulus and what have you, um, is a fascinating thing to watch. And there's, you know, one of the simplest observations out of all of this is you've got all of these people that are entering the business for seemingly some other reason besides that pedestrian objective of actually making money. Um, you know, you've got Google and YouTube that seem to be entering it because they want to eventually leverage it for advertising revenue, so they don't care whether they make any money on the product itself. You've got Hulu that's trying to do it um, to support distribution of the network, so they aren't interested in actually making any money on the the distribution business. Um, You've got DirecTV that's using it as a way now to help sell wireless subscriptions. And so you're getting products that used to be sold at $100 in the market for $35, and nobody's making any money. And it's driving down prices. Okay, this is exactly where I wanted to go. And, and the, the dovetail of this, folks, is I really look I, – I look at like everybody else. I look at the ratings in the industry, and Craig, I would suggest Mr. Trump has been good for cable TV news. Like, you know, good morning at MSNBC to Lawrence O'Donnell, who's just killing it behind Rachel Maddow uh, with his work. I mean, Larry's just killing it in TV. Can you subscribe, Craig, to the idea that cable TV is done well, no. Look, cable TV is not done. But remember, it, it, when you say cable TV, cable TV is not a single business. It's really a whole value chain. It's a whole bunch of businesses, right? Um, when some people mean cable TV, they mean the video distribution coming from people like Comcast and Charter and DirecTV. Other people, when they say cable TV, they mean the networks themselves, um, whether it's CNN or or, um, or the smaller ones, Bravo, or the the integrated ones like Turner and USA. Other people, when they say cable TV, they mean the production of the shows. So HBO or what have you. Those are all part of a big ecosystem, and there are some strengths and there are some weaknesses in that ecosystem. Generally speaking, the production of content, so the studio side, is actually quite healthy these days. There's a lot of good content being produced, and they're still finding lots of places to sell it and make money. The the aggregation function of content that is the concept of a cable network yeah. is less healthy. Um, the concept of 
taking a bunch of different shows and creating a schedule out of them that runs 24 hours a day is starting to be a pretty anachronistic concept, right? So, so the value of the of the network piece is not that high. Yeah, David, the I value think... of the distribution side is falling apart. Um, yeah. now, the physical layer of distribution is great. It, broadband and and if you're a physical infrastructure right. provider like a cable operator that's fine but if you're aggregating those networks and selling them to consumers like direct tv or dish network um and you don't have a broadband business well that's not a good place to be where are we in terms of experimentation in other words you have a lot of these uh, these cable networks and providers trying an, any number of ways to distribute content are we still just trying to figure out what works throwing something at the wall to see uh, what sticks or is there a company are there companies who have figured this out and we're now seeing others emulate them it's a great question. I, I think I would say we're in sort of iteration 1.0, which is to say we're still in the, the phase where the old media companies, um, that is the media companies that we think of today as the big media companies, the Disney's and the Viacom's and the, the Fox's and what have you, are trying all of these new combinations of the old content um, to try to make the perfect skinny bundle, so to speak, of is it that customers want discovery, but they don't want TNT, or is it that they want um, ESPN, but they don't want Fox regional sports, or whatever it is, and people are trying all these different combinations. But that's what I mean by 1.0. Um, in yeah. some ways, it's sort of, a, it's, it's sort of a, a training wheels type of idea to say that what we're really looking for is just a re-aggregation mm -hmm. of the old content. What's much more revolutionary is going on in the background um, with probably a lot less attention, but, but ultimately maybe more important, that whole types of consumption are, are crowding out the concept yeah. of, of traditional Well, let's, TV, let's come back. Well, Craig, we're going to have to come back on this uh, right now. This is really important conversation. Craig Moffat, on how we consume all this media and can anybody make any money at it down the road. We'll continue with Craig Moffat. Of Moffat Nathanson. Craig, you know Spectrum Enterprise. There's all these phone lines out there. What I see are two major players, Verizon is an example, with a too-good-to-be-true 5% dividend. What thinketh you of Verizon's dividend? Is it a legit utility dividend? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and and the I, I think yeah. Look, the answer in the short term is Verizon's dividend is fine, um, but but the there is a fair um, point you raise, and when you mentioned Spectrum Business Services, your sponsor, um, that's a big segment for. Verizon and AT&T. And where's Spectrum Business Services getting its customers from? From Verizon and AT&T. Um, we just published a note earlier this week that points out, or end of last week, uh, that, that points out, so the let's take AT&T for a second. Their commercial wireline services business, something that nobody spends any time talking about. You hardly ever get a question about it. People all want to talk about wireless postpaid net ads and ARPUs and things like that. The the wireline business services at AT&T is larger than the entire company of Time Warner that they're buying. It's bigger than the studio, the cable networks, HBO, um, Warner Brothers, the whole thing combined. And it's shrinking now at 7% a year because of the rate that cable is taking market share um, in the enterprise segment and the business services segment. Um, it makes it incredibly hard for 
AT&T, um, and Verizon um, to actually grow as companies because there are so many places where they face competition um, that, and, and as the so-called incumbents in those businesses, they have nowhere to go but down. Let me ask you about the the so-called uh, triple bundle, the triple play. Now looking at a, a quad play, uh, are we likely to have that four things coming together uh, as one? You, you'll be able to get. I mean, help me, help me with what just the fourth thing would be. That would be mobile services as well. Yes, yeah. The, the quad play has historically meant uh, meant adding mobile to the mix. Although you do have to wonder how much longer um, the one of the other legs of the stool, the wired voice business, um, is really all that relevant a business. Um, and now, as we were talking about in the last segment, mm. there are there are questions about the linear delivery of video. Is video really a separate business anymore, or is video just a different stream of ones and zeros delivered over the broadband pipe that somebody else, whether it's Hulu or Amazon or Google, is ultimately selling. Um, and so the quad play may collapse back down. That said, there's, there is clearly a convergence coming between wired infrastructure and wireless infrastructure. Those two infrastructures are starting to look more and more like each other. You know, if you take wireless networks and you make them denser and denser and denser to support more and more and more users and more and more data, mm-hmm. well, those networks start to look more and more like wired networks. They start to look like a wired network with lots of, of small wireless endpoints on the end. And in some ways, that's what a wired network is today, too, right? You're you don't connect to your cable system via an Ethernet cable anymore. You connect to your cable via a wireless endpoint, Craig, in that case, Wi-Fi. We've, we've seen Apple sort of dip its toe into the creation of content recently here. Do, do you think that we're going to see here in the near term or the medium term uh, a Silicon Valley company getting into production in a, in a, a bigger way? Well, already Amazon is doing that, um, and uh, there are a lot of people who would say that Netflix is a Silicon Valley company. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's clear. Whether we'll see Apple do that, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend to have any particular insight into what Apple's strategic plans are with respect to content creation. Um, you'll certainly see um, more and more activity around bidding for rights, and in some ways, those two things are quite yeah. analogous. You know, there's always talk about will the NFL um, will will, will a, a alternative distribution player bid for the NFL and and yeah. um, eventually the answer is probably yes. Craig Moffat with us. We'll be with him in a second here with Moffat Nathanson uh, this morning. There's a really interesting headline out of Europe. Mr. Macron of France and Chancellor Merkel of Germany are holding a joint news conference after the EU summit. France and the Croix made clear to me this morning this is a big deal that they will hold Basically, the briefing is a joint summit. We'll have much more on that. Mr. Macron says Europe needs France, Germany working together. I guess no surprise. They're separately in Brussels. Mr. Tusk of the European Union says Prime Minister May's citizens offer is below our expectations. That is a prelude to maybe hearing from Prime Minister May. Mr. Juncker speaking right now as well. David Gura? Yeah, you know, I I wonder where you see, uh, Craig, uh, likely combinations in the future. What's going to drive consolidation, further consolidation in the distribution space? 
Um, it, uh, my guess is um, that you'll see less of it than mm-hmm. than people think. Um, the, the the one that everybody talks about, and for good reason, because it's the one that is truly likely, is eventually Sprint and T-Mobile um, will will make a real effort to come together. How quickly that'll happen, I don't know, because there's lots of complicated questions about valuation and complicated questions about regulatory and that sort of thing. But I think they both come to the conclusion that all these other alternatives for each of them weren't really mm-hmm. all that real to begin with, and so they're going to yeah. be, end up end up with each other. Cur- Outside of that, it's harder to say. Yeah. And Altice is talking about they'd love to own Cox. There was an article earlier this week um, that so would Charter, but I don't think Cox is for yeah. sale. Um, and so I don't see a lot of more consolidation coming in cable. I don't see cable buying a wireless operator, even though people like to talk yeah. about that all the time. Um, and uh, and so most of the this stuff is really just arm waving yeah. at this point. I think the big deals <clears throat> are probably going to be fewer and further between Correct. than people think. Very quickly, when you and Michael Nathanson are in speaking terms and you're talking yeah. about where the value is in the market, where is the value within the Moffat Nathanson space? Um, it, it it it's hard to sound creative and and surprising about this, but right now. The businesses that are gaining the most share and have the most value um, are probably um, still the the Googles and Facebooks and the ones that mm-hmm. continue to gain um, the the advertising dollars at the fastest pace. Um, so uh, Michael likes those stocks. Um, there are some value plays, some rebounds. I. I I like, for example, Verizon. I think Verizon is is oversold and is is um, is a better business than most people give it credit for. But it's not a structurally great business. Um, cable is a structurally great business, but the valuations are are right. sort of fully reflect that. Well, so there's fewer val- there's fewer real opportunities on my side of the coverage, the distribution side, probably mm-hmm. than there are on Michael's in the internet and. Yeah. and uh, and content side. we got to cut you off. Craig Moffitt, thank you so much. Generous of you to join us on a Friday away from your clients. Mr. Moffitt works with Michael Nathanson. At Moffitt Nathanson, we protect their copyright. I'm not going to send you out their gorgeous Hulu charts about Hulu's. I don't even know what Hulu is, David. Hulu. Hula. Hulu. Hulu. It's like you get TV. Hulu. You get TV. I, I, I'm too old for this. I, I want a zenith with rabbit ears. Why don't you have the privilege of bringing in the gentleman from Bozeman? Yes, that would be Max Bach, his former U.S. ambassador to China, former U.S. senator from Montana. Of course, he was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Finance, and in that capacity uh, had a big role in getting the Affordable Care Act through the Senate, through Congress. I wonder, first of all, what you would counsel your Democratic colleagues uh, at this point. It seems like there were plenty of Republicans who were upset with how this process unfolded, the secrecy, the secrecy surrounded the drafting uh, of this piece of, of legislation. What should Democrats do now? Allow all of this to play out, allow Republicans to hash out what this bill looks like, what the, what's gonna turn, what, what the draft is going to turn into, or should they take a more active role here? Well, uh, hope springs eternal. Um, and if I were in the Senate Council, let's try. Let's sit down with Mitch McConnell. Um, let's see if we can work something out here that um, where both parties are talking to each other. I think that's a bit a, a, a bit difficult to achieve. That's probably a, a, a bridge too far. 
alternatively, I would um, just explain what's in the bill. I would um, expose what's in the bill. It is an outrage, frankly. It's a huge transfer of wealth from lower-income people to upper-income people. That is uh, cutting health care benefits for, for lower-income people under Medicaid and, and transferring that to a big tax cut for the most wealthy. You know, just, it's just a mean-spirited bill. And the more that's exposed, the more that's known, uh, the more I think we're providing a good service to the American people. Next question is, do you stand up and filibuster and try to stop? I don't know. The, the Republicans will be able to use procedural tactics to get the bill up and vote on it. After all, they are the majority, so they control the rules. Um, so I would I'd explain more why this is a bad idea. Help us understand the way the majority leader works. I know that you've worked alongside him for, for many years. Uh, is, he, is he going to resist taking a bill to the floor if he doesn't have the votes? Uh, give, us, give us a sense of sort of his, uh, his, uh, his ability to get a, get a bill from draft to the, uh, to the Senate floor. He's going to say he'll take it to the floor even though he doesn't have the votes. Um, but I think that's a bit of a bluff. Um, he's, he's trying to bluff conservatives mostly, um, because if he says he takes the bill to the floor, then the conservatives have to, oh, gosh, maybe have to go along with this thing after all, even though a lot of the conservatives don't like it. Um, in the end, I don't know. Uh, Mitch is a very smart man. He's, uh, he's, a, he's probably one of the best politicians in the political sense, knows how to count votes better than anybody else I've ever met. Um, I doubt he'll take it to the floor unless he has the votes. But having said that, yeah. having said that, he will, he will probably find a way to get the votes. The magic number here is 50. Uh, he'll, he'll squeeze the arms of conservatives. He'll squeeze the arms of some moderates until he gets 50. Let me ask you lastly here what the Democrats' message should be. We heard from the, the former president saying this was a mean bill. You're, you're echoing some of the comments that, that he made. What should the Democratic Party's message be here as you do have Americans across this country who are wondering about the future, about the integrity of the Affordable Care Act? Well, that's a very deep question. When we worked on the Affordable Care Act, you know, back in 2008, 9, and 10, we addressed a very basic question. That is, should health care be determined by the marketplace, you know, free for all, or should health care be a right that all Americans should enjoy? And there are two provisions in the bill that get at that. One is the individual mandate. The other is the employer mandate. Now, we put those in because we felt at the time that we we're all in this together. All Americans are in this together mm-hmm. when it comes to health care. And other countries have solved that question. All other countries have individual mandates or employer mandates. Yeah. They have a system where they've decided that they are one country yep. and that health care is not something that's determined by the market. We have to decide that question. All right, mm-hmm. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much, as always. Uh, that's Max Baucus, the former U.S. ambassador to China, former U.S. senator from uh, Montana, of course, long-standing chairman of the Senate Committee on Finance, joining us from Montana on our phone lines. Earlier this morning, the acclaimed economist Justin Wolfers of Michigan tweeted out a brutal tweet which basically said, this is what I think about health care. Look at the Cato Institute. Even they want Obamacare. He joined us yesterday. Thank you so much for your huge response to Michael Cannon's appearance, both pro and con. Michael Cannon joining us briefly here uh, this morning. Michael, you wrote a scathing note this morning, late last night, and within it you say uh, the, the, it would be better if they did nothing. Why do you say that? I, I'm shocked that the Cato Institute is going against any flavor of Republican in siding with President Obama. 
You know, Max Bach has said a lot about uh, how other nations have solved healthcare, about how he took lots of money f- from some people to give it to other people. And, you know, if that improved healthcare, I might be for that sort of thing, but it just doesn't, whether you look at this country or other countries. And uh, what Obamacare has done is increase the cost of health insurance, reduce the quality of health insurance, cause markets to collapse. Why he wants to build on that failure, I don't know. Okay, and but why, why, Republicans, what, what? why Republicans are trying to preserve that. Well, I guess we can figure out why, but it's not what they promised to do. It's not what... Uh, mm-hmm. It's not what voters elected them to do, and it's not going to improve health care. Do you presume there will be a vote that will test the mettle of moderates and conservative Republicans? Well, as Max Bach has said, Mitch McConnell will not bring this bill to the floor unless he has the votes. So if uh, so, it all depends on whether he can get those four conservatives who said they cannot support the bill in its current form. Uh, to 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 get on board and uh, and right now as I, as I said in that piece that you mentioned we posted it at Cato at Liberty the Cato blog uh, this bill is not a step in the right direction and it would take something substantial to make this a step in the right direction they would have to expand health savings accounts dramatically compared to what they do in in this bill. They would have to repeal community rating, which is the heart of Obamacare and is causing all the higher premiums, low quality coverage and instability. You you gave us your five questions yesterday, what you were going to be looking for when that bill came out. It's 140 plus pages. I imagine you're you're wading through it, trying to see what's in it. Libertarians uh, read the footnotes. They read the footnotes. Go, go to the books, uh, Michael. What, what stood out to you most? What are, what are you most concerned about in this in this legislation, this draft legislation? What's most concerning is that it actually expands Obamacare in significant respects. You know, Max Baucus and his colleagues, when they passed Obamacare, they authorized something called cost sharing reduction payments. This is a bailout to insurance companies who participate in Obamacare's exchanges. They authorized that spending, but they never actually funded those subsidies. And Republicans are proposing to do that. So they're proposing to expand expand Obamacare beyond what Democrats created. They are also uh, proposing to expand the uh, another subsidy available through the exchanges, the premium assistance tax credits, to people below the poverty level in states that did not expand Medicaid, which is just not only expands the uh, exchange subsidies, so it expands one Obamacare entitlement, but it's in effect a Medicaid expansion by another means. So Republican Republicans in Congress are saying to Republicans in the 19 states that did not implement Obamacare's Medicaid right. expansion, we're going to override your decision. Michael Cannon, thank you on short notice for joining us. We greatly appreciate your commitment to the show here and yesterday as well. Mr. Cannon is with the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank in Washington. I think his opinions are very well known. And we do thank all of our listeners, those pro-Obamacare, those pro-Trump care, those pro trying to get the kids camp physical in because everybody is book Gotta solid at every Gotta doctor. Any of you, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. 
With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.